Hello humans, welcome to the M-Word podcast, brought to you by Martin, that's me. In a moment, I'll be joined by Dan Thomas on Zoom. Dan's here to chat about the world of blockchain and Bitcoin, and we get to know Dan a little bit better. We hope you enjoy. So welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining me today. No problem, Martin. It's great to uh, be on and talk about this, because most people find it hard to get me to shut up about blockchain and DLT stuff, so it's a good chance to... (laughs) Yeah, no, about it. Dig in. I'm, ho- I'm hoping they'll listen as well because we, I, I want to just ask some questions around, I suppose for you, probably more basic stuff around Bitcoin for those people that haven't come across it, the basics of that, but without going into into too much detail and, and, and that story that's been, been going for, I suppose, eight or nine years now. But perhaps to start the story at the beginning, are you uh, from the Isle Man originally, Dan? Yes. Um, yeah, born here back in 79. Um, my parents moved here. And yeah, I've lived here all my life, apart from three years at university. Right. And what were you doing at uni? Egyptology, which oh. seemed like a good idea at the time. But ancient Egyptian linguistics, unsurprisingly, isn't actually that useful in the real world. And is that, I presume, learning the, the hieroglyphics and the culture? Yeah. yeah, it was a lot more focus on the language than I anticipated, because I wasn't a linguist. And... When we arrived at university, which was literally the last century, um, there was, I think, 13 of us on the court. And half of the group were international students who already spoke two or three languages. And the first lesson was the test because they'd sent us a thing in advance saying, learn the first chapter of the book. And yeah, it was it was interesting, but there was a lot more languages than any of us thought would be. And it's not an easy or fun language to do. And it's interesting. That, but is that a language that's still practiced today? No. No, it completely died out and then it evolved through Coptic into a couple of other things as well. So that's the biggest problem with it, that when you're reading hieroglyphs, you don't necessarily know how they were pronounced. So it makes it very hard to try and practice the language. And, and, and knowing nothing about it, is that hieroglyphic? Is that the actual what, what we'd look or what I'd look at as, as letters? Yeah, um, kind of. It's a kind of a phonetic visual icon language. So you might have a symbol of a person, which in some instances means man, in some instances has a particular sound. If you put it in a different word, it has different meanings. Um, one thing with it, because it was all the evidence is carved in stone, the words aren't always the same length. So you might have the word cat spelt C-A-T for one bit of stone, you might just have a picture of a cat on another one, or you might have it spelled C, C, A, A, T, T kind of thing to fill bigger bits. <laughs> did, it, did everyone who started the course finish it? Uh, no, we had a 50% dropout rate. Oh, okay. right. And where was more what, sense than me. What uni were you at for that? Liverpool University. Right. And the, the Egyptian side of things, so again, you read stuff about the, the pyramids, well, you know, and the the connections to, you know, I, I've seen stuff many years ago now where it's built in, in shapes where there's, I use the word people where you can see up through it and it points to certain star constellations and things like that. And there's yeah. the, you know, then people go as far as whether it's right or wrong. I'm not particularly commenting the alien connection to that. Is that stuff, not necessarily the alien side, but that do you, is that part of the culture side you learn, learn as well? Yes, a lot of that was in it. So how they were built, how they were, designed what the function of them was a lot of the stuff is 
we would do is religious-based because a lot of the iconography left in the text would be based around the religion and the afterlife. Um, a lot of it is uh, the Egyptians had a belief that you would take anything that was listed. So you'd have like a stone tablet with a list of stuff on it, and that would go with you to the afterlife, including your slaves. So they would have to do the work for you in the afterlife. So a lot of it is lists of bread and chickens and things like that and food. Oh, wow. Okay. But some of the stuff, yeah, the alignment of the pyramids, the design of them, how they were built, yeah, that that did form quite a bit. And yeah. do, they, do they understand now how? I mean, again, you look at the structure and the, the age and te technology or lack of. Do they actually know how they were built? Yes. Um, the we've the problem people have when they look at it is they don't. It's just a matter of time, and if you're the Egyptian people at the time had huge amounts of resources because the Nile was so abundantly fertile for them. So they got so much food and resources from it. They had spare time for men to spend hundreds of hours carving a single block and spend a hundred years building a pyramid and then capping it with limestone. So the ones you see now weren't how they looked. They all had a limestone sheath covering them. So they would have looked like a giant white smooth pyramid at the time. Like Luxor in Vegas. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. Yeah. And with a, I think some of them had gold caps on the top, but it was just a matter of they would be built over generations and it was just time and big heaps of sand with blocks of stone being dragged up them. Yeah, getting that, that's the one of the logical things, because obviously the stones at the side and getting them up that pyramid. Um, yeah, yeah it, would, it would literally take years for them to do it. It's, um, but because we're used to modern architecture and modern building methods, Apart from maybe the prom, you expect things to be done quite quickly. So, <laughs> and obviously, the, the, the natural instinct, I think, I don't know whether you went straight to Mike Telecom, but obviously, after studying that, going to Mike Telecom seems the natural next step. Uh, well, I, I left <laughs> university and found it very hard to get a job because I had very little real world experience. I had a degree which was no plausible use outside of working in a museum. Um, so I went and worked in finance for, I think, a year and a half. Absolutely hated it because it was just very basic admin finance. But I'd taken up a lot of martial arts at uni. So I ended up going to Cyprus for a week to train with an instructor out there. Got qualified. And the original plan when I went to Next Telecom was to go part-time in the shop there and then part-time teach some martial arts. Um, and I had no idea how to run a business, do marketing, and this was 2004, so they maybe had MySpace back then, and there was nothing to advertise it on, so I'd knocked together a website, and it never really did anything, had a few students, decided to scrap it off, and ended up working in the shop for you know, nine years. Okay, and I presume during that time then you're starting to build technical knowledge, because obviously we're going to get into that, that, that side of yeah, there was lots of support of tech at the time. It was lots of configuring of computers for broadband connectivity. Um, with the mobile phone side, because there was a lot of that, it was it was probably the best time to be involved in the industry because every other week something new was coming out. We had the first camera phone, um, and a mate of mine who was very into tech at the time came in, looked at it and went, why the hell are you selling these? No one will ever want a phone with a camera in it. Um, first time we had MMS, which was a nightmare to set up. We had the gadget show over the first time we launched 3.5G. So I helped them configure the device for that. 
and then touchscreen started happening, iPhone started happening, Android came out, and every I say every other week or so, something new would be happening. A new device would be coming out. Um, there'd be something new to learn. But by the end of that, I was sort of dying off a bit that everything was getting a bit samey. The devices were all very similar, and it was slowing down a lot. I guess that you look at like the vision of you know, the apples, et cetera, the world that, that had this long-term vision of having this, this thing in your hand that, that we see today. Uh, but like you say, your friend comes in and says, who's, you know, probably 89% of us would have said the same. Why do I need to text someone when I can ring them? Why do I need a camera in my phone? Yeah. Um, and just the, the vision of the guys back then, the belief that this is something that would... would yeah, it, it was bizarre because but after you'd been there a few years and seen all the devices cycle through and how they improved you start to realize that a lot of these things the first gen of it was awful i mean the point two megapixel cameras on phone yeah they are useless but they're not the end game hmm. but that's where it's going and that's sort of how the technology is developing and there's things that i look at now based on how i used to work in the phone shop and based on the knowledge i got then things like the augmented reality apps that I know there's certain limitations behind them and the ones we've got now pretty much suck. But give another two or three years, we're going to look back and say, oh, that was the starting point. That was where it all came from. Yeah. So, so that's like kind of maybe a good segment to talk about Bitcoin. I actually said during the eight years, I suppose it's back to 2009 when that original white paper, I think it was 2009, came out because it was around, or 08, because it ran the crash time. Yeah. You want to just maybe... Uh, for our listeners, just set the scene about that initial white paper, where it came from, because obviously that's a great story that still goes on today, uh, yeah. and and and, the, and what the concept was about, really. So the original white paper, the uh, well, it was written by an anonymous person called Satoshi Nakamoto. To this day, we don't know who he is or who she was or who they were. So just to put in there, it's a white paper for those who haven't come across it. In essence, it's the business plan. Well, no, the, the tech, this is this is the code, this is what it's going to look like, this is my vision for how it's going to be implemented. Yeah, I mean, it was only nine pages long, and it's an outline of what the goal is of the solution, some of the maths around it, and how it would function. So at the time it was launched, um, I didn't find out about it probably till four or five, three or four years later, I think it was, I first heard about it. And it was kind of, people have been working on things like this for a while because it was, <clears throat> it was designed, well, they describe it as digital cash in the white paper. And there've been people working on things like this for a few years. There've been attempts to do a blockchain based solution before, but the computing power wasn't there. And around that time we were starting to get the increase in computing power that meant you could, do certain things that were required to power the entire protocol. So it came out, no one heard about it. It was worth nothing because it was just traded between a few people on forums who knew what it was and got the point of it. <coughs> then I say gradually it started to get a bit more accepted. Um, exchanges started appearing for it so other people could buy in and buy out. But it was still very, very much the tech guys involved in it. The usability was not great. The apps themselves, the wallets to store it on were awful. Um, the entire concept 
of self-sovereign identity and self-sovereign data ownership where you have that full control of your money was still alien to people. Um, it still is to a lot of people today. And that side of it really took a fair few years before it started to become accepted and started to become understood even within the tech community. And that, I think that's certainly, whether it was a coincidence that, that, that the start point was in a way when the, when the you know, ass end of the world was crashing out uh, from a financial perspective, that the, the system ultimately was, or the, the, the thought process was, uh, and the white paper it talks about, really peer-to-peer movement of, of something, whatever that might be, yeah. to stop that intermediary so you look at institutions whether it's the banking etc you're removing that from the process and and more importantly if you want to send me money you can do that you require no one's permission to do that no one has has force which obviously goes on to other aspects of, of the this yeah. thing that's probably tainted the industry really for many years uh while corruption goes on in the in the normal and fraud and everything else that goes on in our systems already why another system where it can potentially happen but everything's kind of that's that ends up with the black mark part next to it but yeah it's that moving that intermediate moving that middleman so you and i can can and, and then when you touch on exchanges there for those of people that haven't used crypto exchanges ultimately it's still i suppose there is someone in the middle i put it on the exchange sell it on and so there's there's an element of lost control to a point i guess but, uh, yeah, the exchanges there's a few different types so some of them work like normal fx or trading exchanges where you're set with a market maker who manages the holding but there are and we're starting originally there were decentralized exchanges which were just peer-to-peer marketplaces and now we're starting to see some more of those come back um, but it's not one of the exchanges because as you say the entire point was it's peer-to-peer with no one else managing it and you say that sprung up from the banking crisis and there's even a quote about that in the first block on bitcoin and but in order to enable people to on an off ramp into the currency easily so if you've got a thousand dollars you can't necessarily just go to someone and buy a bitcoin or buy some bitcoin from them um, because that's classed as sale of money by organizations and governments and they don't like it so you have to get go through an exchange they in turn require kyc and that sort of misses a lot of the point of it, of the original goals of this white paper, that it was supposed to be peer-to-peer and it was supposed to be decentralised and it was supposed to be without anyone sat in the middle handling your wallets and handling your coins for you. Yeah. And it's, the uh, you mentioned the word self-sovereignty there, that's, I think, still a, a struggling concept where you have a private key for your own money, so if it gets stolen, you've got nowhere nowhere to look, nowhere to go. Uh, still yeah, a concept I think would probably take a generation or two to... Yeah, it's starting to get better, but we still see that even I'm involved in a few projects who have um, listed coins on exchanges and you still get people who are actively investing in it. So they're giving their money to these organisations or buying these currencies, but they don't understand how it works. So they'll contact you and say, well, I've lost my private key. What can I do? I'm like, well, nothing. You're knackered, really. You know, there's any time you get a wallet, for example, if you get a decent digital wallet on your phone to store them in, it will say to you, here's a list of information you have to keep. And they all do it, go, yeah, whatever, skim past, and then forget about it in six months. Um, so one of the projects I'm working with, Rowan, for example, 
they did an airdrop just before I joined where they give out some of the coins to thousands of people who perform, who do things like talk about it on social media and that kind of thing. And that's been a quite a problem with that, that they've had their free tokens. And now they're saying, well, I didn't store my data. And I know the wallet they use gives them very specific instructions on what to do, but then they've lost it. And unfortunately, there's no way for us to bypass that for them. So that, so to go back that call to talk then about Bitcoin, to within that, that Bitcoin. So, so one of the differences, or one of the, yeah, I guess one of the, so you look at the money system that we have, that we, you know, I suppose every listener is familiar with, where, well, I say, <laughs> I say governments issue money, but they don't, banks issue money as well, because they issue debt, which goes, which creates, which creates money within the system. Hmm. Uh, so therefore, inflation, deflation, and the value of the pound in your pocket can be affected by decisions made by, by whether by well, whoever's issuing that money. Where with with the Bitcoin and, and really the code behind it, that's capped. So like yes. like gold, a lot of that value is because although we don't know how much, there is limited resources within subject yeah. finding it. Uh, Bitcoin's the next extension that where there is actual a cap on it. Uh, so therefore. Like anything in the world, when there's, when there's a scarcity of it, value increases. So that's one of the attractions that you can't, uh, third parties can't deflate that value either. But the other side of that, which in fact it maybe works the opposite thinking about it, because I know people you talk about losing Bitcoin, you lose your passcode, you lose it, it's gone forever. There is no way to, well, I think it's capped at 21 million. It, arguably, I think they're saying three or four million is lost already. Yes, I think we're at about 18 million has been mined and a considerable sum has been lost because, again, when it first came out, it was very easy to mine it. You could generate the Bitcoin yourself. As you say, there is that hard cap. It's just under 21 million Bitcoin and that's 2140. That'll be, I think, give or take. That'll be mined. So we know. So it's got this hard monetary policy that we know exactly how much is being released and we know when more is hitting the system and when we're going to have a full amount mined but when it first started and people were mining it <clears throat> there wasn't many people doing it it was easy to mine and it had very little value so there was one quite famous story of a guy who mined loads had it sat on a hard drive in his garage from when he changed his computer checked it a few years later realized he was now very very rich went to get out of the garage and turned out his wife had thrown away his box of old junk which had this hard drive in. So in a landfill in England, there is um, a hard drive with millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin sat in it. Yeah. And there have actually been companies who have considered physically going out there and because they know roughly where it is, in the, I think it's about a mile block, and going and trying to mine, physically mine through this review site to find this hard drive. And then, I mean, the other, you know, when uh, I was kind of starting to learn more about Bitcoin, the pizza story is the first, uh, yeah, transaction that ever sort of happened on it. I suppose on a commercial sense of it, to purchase something, someone paid to buy a pizza with Bitcoin. And I think there's yeah. a day, there's a day that I don't know what date it is, and maybe you know, every year, which is Pizza Bitcoin Day. And uh, now that pizza would be worth you know, 30 million or whatever it would be. There is, yeah. I mean, that's that's the trade off with it at the minute that we're finding a lot of people want to hold the coins because they know or they suspect it's going to go up in value long-term. But in order to get adoption and in order to get companies using it, we have to be spending it, we have to be active with it. <clears throat> and with foresight, that looks really foolish. Like 
Bitcoin pizza. I think it was 20,000 Bitcoin he spent on a pizza. So looking back, probably not the best long-term investment, but it's things like that that mean we did get adoption that people start to talk about it. And I think he was actually the first guy to do a lightning transaction as well, which is the side chain of Bitcoin. And he um, bought a pizza on that one as well. So we've got Bitcoin Pizza Day, Lightning Pizza Day. And in fact, on the 31st of this month, it's the anniversary of the white paper coming out. Oh, right. Okay. I think it's 11 years. And why do you think, uh, again, for people that are perhaps unfamiliar with Bitcoin, haven't used it, or they just, or just, it, it, nothing, you can't touch it, can't feel it, there's nothing tangible there. What, what would your comment to that be? Um, well, virtually all money's like that anyway. Um, then when you look at, standard when we say fiat currencies we don't necessarily just mean government currencies we mean anything that's centrally issued but if you look at those particularly the government ones they're virtually all digital anyway something like 96 percent of your money doesn't exist it's all held in databases somewhere <coughs> and managed by banks or building societies who say they have it but have nothing backing it yeah so it's, it's interesting that because again i, I think Perhaps, perhaps not everyone's just general would be everyone's general understanding of that from so I believe after the Second World War uh, they, they put all the gold in Fort Knox the, the US government then started issuing currency based on here's a dollar you've got a dollar's worth of gold in the in the bank yeah the gold gold standard yeah the gold standard yeah from Bramwoods and then then in the when they went to think Vietnam War happened they were short cash America didn't have enough money in essence and stopped printing money and when I say print money, as in here's a dollar, I printed it, there's nothing back in it, so it's worth the paper it's printed on. So it started to devalue, and, and that's where the, I think the world economy ultimately moved away from. My, my dollar has value. So even we talk about governments having issuing money, that's just, and banks creating credit, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just numbers in a spreadsheet. Yeah, it's bonkers. That's the thing with the gold standard, that it's surprising how many people, and I, mean, I was at an event probably the end of last year on Ireland. And there was a few speakers there and one of them said about fiat currency being gold backed. And I think in the UK it was Churchill took us off the gold standard in late forties, I think, then put us back on it, then took it off. And I think it was the seventies off the top of my head, but seventies or early eighties, um the US fully came off it. And it's it's the standard way fiat currencies work. They get so far backed with an asset but then they realize they're running out of money and they have to find a way to do it so in the american case they made it illegal to hold gold off the top of my head i think they said you everyone had to return any physical gold assets they stored them in Fort Knox, various places and then they just took the currency off it altogether yeah. and then that allowed them to do mass inflation um yeah fractional lending is the other one that's a big issue and just keep yeah, devaluing the money in your pocket. Yeah. One of the, I was watching a documentary a while ago, and one of the things I, I suppose I didn't know, maybe my own naivety is that, and I touched on it before, was that when I, when I first got a house and mortgage, I went to the bank, asked to borrow some money. They said we're going to charge you three and a half percent for two hundred grand. You're great, and and I assumed that that two hundred grand belonged to a couple of people who'd saved all their lives, put their money in the bank, <laughs> were looking for interest on that, and the bank would go. Well, you've given it to us. We'll look after it. We'll give you one and a half percent. We're going to lend it to this geezer over here for two, and we'll keep the difference. And that's how they make money. And that seems pretty. I believe certainly through school, that's how I was educated. How I understand the money system to work. 
But the reality is when I go to the bank and ask for 200 grand, they, they, they agree or they disagree with that based on their own risk profile and create the money out of nothing. So they create money. They, they overdraw my account by 200 grand and it's just yeah. numbers in a spreadsheet. And I pay interest on that. So every day that, that, that capital reduces because I give them 10 yeah. pound plus a pound interest and they keep that pound interest as capital and they just reduce that debt and all, all that time. Their security is obviously my, my property. Mm-hmm. Hopefully for them will stay in value, but they've, they've not, They've not done, they've not risked anything really that just keeps something into a database and said he has 200 grand. And this happens globally every day. It is. I mean, I remember seeing a tweet a few months ago and it was a guy said, um, you know, the global economy is 1.7 trillion in debt or something overall. Who the hell are we in debt to? Mars. Yeah. And that's the thing. We've built a system of fiat currencies which are built around debt. And I didn't a talk. Uh, a couple of years ago now as part of junior achievement i was doing some events there <clears throat> and it was a talk about finances and this brochure they gave me had a line that said there's good debt and there's bad debt and i said to kids there's no such thing as good debt there's just debt that banks approve of you having then there's debt that banks don't like you having yeah. <laughs> but we as a society we're used to this idea that banks are good for us that they are central and the right way to do things so yeah. we kind of accept that we all have massive mortgages. We all take car loans out. We all have credit cards. Um, whereas something like Bitcoin, you can't, well, you can't do it inherent in the system. There are companies now that have found that do do this sort of process, um, but they do it off chain. But actually something like Bitcoin being a, a fixed asset is you can't say, actually, I'm going to multiply my Bitcoin and give it to five people because you've either got it or you haven't. Yeah. And you can't give it to people if you don't have it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, w- one of the things that certainly the area you're working in now, one of the core fundamental parts of Bitcoin is the blockchain, that, yeah. that, that concept. Maybe talk us through what that element of, because that's, well, that's an important part of Bitcoin. That I wouldn't say yeah. sprout another entry, but that's created a, a completely separate world as well. So maybe, yeah, just explain what that, the blockchain is as people see it. Or as we see for in simplistic terms as humanly possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea of the blockchain is one of my personal bugbears that it's become a bit of a marketing term thrown around to say, oh, we're a blockchain solution, but a blockchain is just another form of database. What really matters is how you put the data in there and how it's managed once it's in there. Because <clears throat> anyone can make a blockchain, it's just sets of data which are linked via math. So you get a block of transactions, you run some mass over them all to get a number, you put that number in the first of your next set of transactions and you do the same thing. And so they're all linked together. So in theory, if you change one, you have to change everyone that came after it as well. So think of it like pages in an Excel spreadsheet. You have a tab, you put all your data in that tab until it's full. You then do some maths on it, put that number into the second tab and start filling that one and so on. With, when I ask there, that first tab in that scenario, when that when that when that, that then gets sealed in the put in the blockchain scenario, that gets sealed. So to as you build these blocks on top of each other, to to basically fraud, you think of fraud and etc. You have to go back to the beginning, and, and to do that, computer computer power through mathematics, which just every yeah. day the block gets bigger, that gets well, arguably it's impossible, so, but harder and harder. Yeah, these things. If you think about the first block. Any day, if you want to change any data that's in that, 
and you're 10 blocks down the road, you've got to then change all the blocks that come after because you've changed that first figure that goes into the next block, which changes that block's result which goes, and so on down the line. Um, I, I normally whiteboard this out, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's one of the things, I mean, this is one of the challenges of it, that it's not necessarily something that's particularly easy to explain without some knowledge about cryptography and hashing and data structures. It's a, uh, but yeah, it's just distinct blocks of data connected to each other. So if you have, to, if you change one, you've got to change everything that came after. Yeah. <clears throat> but if we look at it in terms of Bitcoin, because that was what it was really developed for, the current version of it, it's, there's more than just the blockchain to Bitcoin. So there's the consensus rules about how data is decided on. There's the current itself, which is passed, well, and again, you don't even actually pass the currency round. You pass around keys that say, I own this much currency. So it's one of the things where the deeper you go into it, the more confusing it gets. Um, but what people have done is they said, right, we know Bitcoin has a blockchain. It's a nice catchy phrase. It's easy to understand. So we'll start calling things a blockchain. And this is where you end up with situations where people are getting confused, like Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And people try and compare the two, but Bitcoin is a means of value transfer. Ethereum is a global computing platform. So they're completely different goals. But people still measure them against each other and say, well, Ethereum is better than Bitcoin or Bitcoin's better than Ethereum. But you wouldn't say uh, my laptop is better than Excel because they're completely different things. <clears throat> and, but they both use this backend architecture of a blockchain type solution. And they both, but they put data in it differently. The end goal of what they do with that data is different, how it's managed, how it's consensus. Um, so when I look at them now, I don't think in terms of a blockchain, I tend to think of it in terms of the entire solution, like what's the end goal of it. And this is something people have got to be wary of actually that you'll get sales guys and marketing guys going, oh, it's great, we're on a blockchain. I said, well, so what? It doesn't matter. You may as well be in a database if you're not doing X, Y, and Z with it. So you've really got to look at Bitcoin particularly in detail and then Ethereum to understand when you look at any project, what it's trying to achieve and how it's doing it. So, so again, maybe something I've still not got my head around there. Yeah, right. Generally, when you, when you look at, you mentioned about owning Bitcoin, uh, keep yeah. going back to that, I suppose it's the, the standard. When you when you own it, like you say you have a private key to that chain, this long chain. You own this element. Your key gets you in here. It's not you don't have it on your hard drive. You don't you know you can store you can it's, store your private keys on, on on software, but it's ultimately not there. It's on that. Where's that blockchain? You know, just a logical person. You know, or, you know, you that. Where is that? Where is that blockchain? What you have is private keys that say this account or this address owns say one Bitcoin um, and so they're stored throughout the blockchain. Where's that blockchain? The, the, pardon? Where's that blockchain? That's stored on full nodes. So the idea is that every rather than having one computer that stores a database and then copying that to somewhere else, <clears throat> every full node on Bitcoin holds a full copy of this blockchain. So they hold all the data and they compare it to each other. 
So they're constantly talking to each other and constantly saying, right, my data says this, yours says this. Right, do they add up? Do they match? And they work on a consensus mechanism. So if you've got 100 full nodes and 55 of them say, right, this data's right, and 45 say it's wrong, they ignore the 45 and they go off that consensus model. And that's why it's this decentralized thing. There's no central point of truth. It's lots of truths that are compared to each other to see how many of them agree. So that, so that for that again, just to, when you look at them again, digging deeper and deeper into it, but you look at a node, where are those nodes? What, how many of them? Um, they're just computers. Okay. So a node in IT terms is just anything connected to the network. So in Bitcoin, for example, you have different types of nodes. So a wallet that just stores your private keys is, a, is technically a type of node, although it doesn't do anything to verify the network. It doesn't look at the network and say, this data is right. It just has data it can pass to the network. <coughs> um, you have full nodes, which are ones that hold the entire blockchain and talk to each other and compare their data and say, yeah, this is right, this isn't right. And then you have the mining nodes. And these are the ones that, so if I was to send you one Bitcoin, please, I would push. <laughs> I would send it out. It would go out to the network. So I would send from my phone. I'd say, right, send you one Bitcoin. It doesn't go straight to you. What it does is that transaction goes out to the network, to the miners. They say, right, first of all, has he got a Bitcoin? Yes, he has. That's fine. Then they say, is this other wallet valid? Yes. Is the transaction itself correctly written? Yes. And they then add that to a block. Well, they're all competing to generate a block of data. So they do that, and assuming they generate that block, it gets added to the chain. So there's nothing necessarily which directly goes to your wallet. What happens is your wallet's looking at the same network as mine is, and it's saying, actually, the entire network's now said, I have access to this Bitcoin. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. It's a bit odd because it's peer-to-peer, -peer, but in a way it's not because it doesn't. I'm not talking directly to you. I'm talking to the entire network, and they're saying, yes, you can do this, or no, you can't. Yeah, yeah, and it's then, like you say, done on a consensus. So there's no one point of approval or failure. I suppose yeah. in both those scenarios. Yeah, so everyone looks at it and everyone says yes or no, and then the consensus drives it. So you mentioned it. Uh, you mentioned about Bitcoin being around. You kind of came across that three or four years in, and then off the back of that, the blockchain side of things. How did your involvement grow from there? Was that just from development? I understand. When, when I first got into Bitcoin, uh, I sort of was very foolish. They used to do Bitcoin faucets, and these were little websites you could go and get some free Bitcoin. And I remember reading an interview just when it hit about 20K with this Bitcoin dev at the time who was mining and was giving out free Bitcoin to people to try and encourage them to do it. And it was only a couple of pence of Bitcoin. And he said people were complaining because he was only doing two Bitcoin per give out. <laughs> And at the time, I remember looking at them thinking, oh, this is interesting. You can get all these free things. And I, I think it was listed on one random exchange that no one in the real world had heard of. And I said, that's only worth like 70p a day. It's not worth it. And I think I was, I'd worked out from the faucets. I could get 10 to 12 Bitcoin per day for free. Uh -huh. And I ignored it and didn't bother yeah. and disappeared for a few years. And then back, after I worked in Max Tuckham's phone shop, I went into the web dev team and then I ended up working in their back office systems, the system analyst. 
And it was around that time that I'd heard about Ethereum, this global computing platform. And I was familiar enough with the tech, but I hadn't really been following price stuff at all because this was probably 2015-ish. And it was one of those things that it wasn't publicly that prominent, so no one really knew about it. And I heard about Ethereum, heard what it was trying to do, thought, oh, this sounds good. Started to get into that side of it um, and start to follow it a bit more. And then my interest kind of grew from there. So I was doing database work at Telecom. And on the side, I was talking to a lot of uh, cryptocurrency guys, and blockchain devs, people working in the Bitcoin space, and all through LinkedIn, randomly. I just did it all on there. I used to talk about it and just have conversations with people on there about it. And particularly at that time, and even now, it was a bit like being able to just message Steve Jobs and say, hi, you can tell me about this new product you've got. They're, all, they're so available and the devs are so happy to talk about it to someone who has you know, an understanding of it that you can just message guys who have founded multi-million dollar companies and say, you know, What's this bit about? Why are you doing it this way? And they all get back to you and you have conversations with them. So I, I got very interested in that way. And at the when was it, start of last year, one of the managers at Van Adventures, which is Max Telecom's um, incubator company. So they're the ones who do all the new tech and that sort of thing. They messaged me and said, oh, We've, I know you're into blockchain because you're always talking about it online. We've got, we're looking to do some work with a blockchain company and do a proof of concept with them. Would you like to be part of that project and just come and help us out, help us understand it a bit more? So I did that over nine months or so. And at that point, I'd realized yeah, this is definitely something I want to be working in. The tech is amazing. It's new, it's interesting, and it's genuinely got a potential to be world changing. So, yeah, that finished back end of last year, fourth quarter last year, I think we finished that project. I was talking to a lot of people online about it still, and after, um, <laughs> let's just say a few things resulted in me deciding that it was telecom wasn't for me anymore. So start of this year in it was February, I handed my notice in there right. um, to, to try and make my way in this blockchain world as something. Um, I'd done a qualification by that point as well. I'd, I'd done an online blockchain solution architect qualification just to partially for me to see if I actually knew it as well as I thought I did. Because that's always the thing with this stuff. You talk to people, but because you're not dealing with experts in it every day, it's very hard to gauge your own level of understanding. So I went off, did the exam, got the qualification. Um, and again, I put that on LinkedIn. And I had quite a lot of people contact me about it to talk about it. I ended up doing a talk down at the Engine House in Castletown um, to a group of people about sort of blocked, very similar to this, just the basic history of it, how it works, no you. And then as I said, I decided that I wanted to leave and do it on my own. So I handed my notice in and start of May. Was it the yeah, start of May, I think it was? I yeah, set up and hadn't had to make my way and start earning a wage from it. While COVID's spreading around the world. That, that, yes. that well, everyone's locked down. <laughs> that qualification is that, again, I, I think about people who, and blockchain, 
you just think a computer geek in the corner writing code. Well, maybe not everyone I do. But is the qualification a bit of, well, I assume it's broader than that. Um, no, it was quite, the specific one I did was an architect one. So it was, you've got a client who needs this sort of solution. What software stack would you recommend? How would you recommend they approach it? That kind of thing. So, because I've, I've done some dev work, but I am certainly, and anyone who worked with me at Telecom Dev Team will probably agree, I'm not a great dev because I never, the role we had was dozens of different systems. So you never really specialized in that way. And I've never done it at university or formal qualifications in it. My, my dev level is that I understand it and I can do the basics, but I'm not a particularly high in dev. And when you say dev, so, that's someone who writes code for... Uh, sorry, yeah, a developer. Yeah. yeah, so who sits there and actually writes the code behind them. So uh, I could look at the code and understand it, but I wouldn't want to sit there and try and build some of the things these guys are building. But the architect sort of role is more a holistic overview of it, that it's not necessarily building a single part, it's understanding how those parts all fit together right. and how that builds the end solution. So rather than just being able to say, right, I can program a blockchain or I can program in you know, uh, an ERC token on Solidity in Ethereum, I say, well, actually, I know that if you want to do this solution, you're probably going to need this, this, and this. And I've got quite a red range of experience from my time at Telecom, so which helps in that sort of role because you can look and say, actually, I know you're going to need app developers to do this and this. I know you need a database to slot into here and that kind of thing. So the... Uh... The, what was I going to say about blockchain? Just train thought. I've melted your brain with it already and it hasn't yeah, been no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The thought of nodes and, and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I can, yeah, that was what I was going to talk about because you talk about sort of a holistic view and looking at uh, uh, where it can be applied. And again, you mentioned the word got banded around four or five years, well, probably three years, four years ago. There was a lot of you just put blockchain in front of your name. Yeah. yeah, completely different different business. Uh, when when we're seeing it, I mean, they're, they're talking about revolutionising the, the world and the way we work, mm. but, and then you're starting to see more and more practical applications of that. So, an examples that I've seen, and I don't know the technical aspects, but you you look at delivery firms and how they then yeah. use the blockchain to, to track the whole the whole process of of sourcing products to delivery to making sure they're not counterfeit. So that's the type of example where, because again, blockchain can't, I use the word hack, I appreciate that's a very, I'm a very non-techie layman terms and can't be, but that, that's part of the, the value add that it's bringing to these propositions as well as hopefully yeah. the idea is to streamline as well. Yeah, the idea really, it's that any time you want multiple parties to work together who don't trust each other, then a blockchain might work. But the trade-off is at the nature of decentralized computing and the fact you've got to have all the node, all the full nodes have to have all the data. Um, you're trying to create a box and you're in this competitive race to add data into it means that it's very computational intensive, sucks up a lot of electricity, and it's quite slow. And that's the problem that a lot of people have with Bitcoin. They want to say, well, it's it's not a good form of money because it's too slow. You can't go and buy a cup of coffee with it because you've got to wait an hour for it to be confirmed. But it's like any technology. There are, there's always going to be trade-offs. And in the case of a good blockchain solution, you're getting 
decentralized self-sovereign ownership the trade-off to that is time and effort um, and that's what we're seeing a lot of these so ones like the example you said of um, <clears throat> uh, lines of communication between food providers for example that's multiple companies who are perhaps paying each other or perhaps are in competition with each other and suppliers who need to be able to talk to each other but don't you wouldn't want to say right company a is in charge of all the data and company b just gets a copy of that you want them to perhaps have same access and same level of control over the data and that's what the blockchain structure enables often and, and one of the things that also sprung out to me about the, that general i suppose community as well as well that you're working that when, you, when you're looking at blockchain and, and crypto and all those things is one that that decentralizing it and the, I suppose it feels more like a community environment because there's no one central power power source in, in, in that outside yeah. of the, the, the actual power, I suppose. But what, one of the things that really struck me, I, I found quite interesting, when, when projects are coming off the ground or when they're developing projects or they're developing code, they, and certainly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they, they'll, they'll put code out there into the, into the community for people to, to, to try and pick holes in, to find problems with, and, they re- and then you get rewards off that. And again, it's that community mentality because you go back yeah. to the, the old ages of living in villages and all working together for the, for the bigger cause of the farmer. It's an it odd sort like of environment. Yeah, it is. It's an odd sort of community because in theory, everyone's pulling towards the same goal, but they're competing to pull the hardest towards that goal, if it makes sense. So, it, yeah, it is very much community, but it does come with... I'm trying to think of a white phrase for it. Um, yeah, the, the communities can, can become too close-knit and too focused on their branch of the solution. So you do get um, Bitcoin maximalists, for example, who think everything else that uses the blockchain is rubbish. And sometimes they're right. There is an awful lot of drivel out there, particularly after 2017, with the craze of everyone just going, right, we're a blockchain, we'll launch a coin, we'll make millions, and then we'll disappear. But not all things are designed to replace Bitcoin. And that's the mindset some of them have is that Bitcoin is the only use for a blockchain and it's the best use for it. And I'd agree that probably it is the best form of um, value ownership at the minute. It's the best sort of form of currency we've got in the blockchain space. But it can't do certain things and it certainly can't do them to the level that others like Ethereum can. So if you want to build your own project and do um, so digital tokens, for example, like trading card games, there's quite a lot of those at the minute where you have digital tokens that you own as an individual and you can trade them with other people and you know that they're unique. You can't necessarily do that on Bitcoin. You have to do something like Ethereum. Um, There's ones like IOTA is one I like to talk about because it doesn't actually use a blockchain, but it's still a decentralized system. Um, And that's designed for very, very fast microtransactions. So machine to machine transactions. So there is a range of end use cases that can't be compared to each other. You have to compare, to look at them on their own and say, right, fair enough, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, they're all trying to do the same thing. And we know, and yeah, Bitcoin is the best one of them but you can't really compare it to something else. And that's where things like CoinMarketCap 
if anyone looks at that, that's a website which lists all the current coins by their price and their market cap. And it's become quite a community thing. So, oh, yeah, we, we've gone up two places on this. Like, well, it doesn't matter. It's not relevant to your project yeah. if you've suddenly gone up on there much. So yeah. that's the, the problem with the community side, that, and particularly as we've had it 11 years now, Bitcoin, you have got some people who are very, very entrenched in it. And now it's worth so much. Financially, it's worth it to them to really argue for that one and say, well, nothing could ever replace it because it's so good. Yeah, I think, I mean, going back to your analogy earlier, working on telecom and that first phone, with uh, mm. it didn't have the, the functions of the phone today. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, a, no pun intended, the building block for the for just future development. You know, you've got to start something somewhere. Yeah. Uh, you think of Bitcoin like being able to call, like a telephone that makes calls. We, we still all have phones that make calls. Yeah. We may not use them much because we've got other tech there as well. But that's really what it's for. Bitcoin was the let's transfer currency to each other without needing a third party. Yeah. Now we've expanded to, well, actually, we can transfer any data to each other without needing a third party. You could do movies if you wanted to. Because um, that's when you look at a blockchain in that respect, that's the big thing we've got now with the internet is that we can copy data, but actually exchanging it where the person who had it before loses it is very, very hard to do. And it's very hard to confirm that it's happened. Whereas with a blockchain, it's quite easy to do that. Because yeah. as you know, as soon as someone else has got it, the person who had it written 100% can't access that anymore. So, so, what, so one of the kind of buzzwords that goes around, it's obviously very relevant, is decentralization. So mm. again, you look at, we talked earlier about governments and that central body, you talk about, media outlets where you know the bulk of media comes from and they're they're very centralized you look at i suppose twitter when it i guess when it was first established and everyone could voice anything they wanted on there and it becomes sensitive sensitive i guess and uh it just moves into a again it's a media outlet ultimately nowadays and yeah. that, that people can pull strings and and, and mediate and that, i guess that's what again one of the big things with with blockchain and that concept of decentralization and that ability that things certain things do need sensitizing because we don't want to be you know preaching hate uh, and, and thing, things like that uh, and I, i'd always imagine that's going to be a fine balance where you want to decentralize everything give everyone ability to say and do anything they want but at the same time there needs to be rules where you can't go around doing certain things but where that where's that limit yeah it's it's a tricky one without a doubt because in an ideal world, any system would be a, a bit like Reddit, where the community decides what gets seen and what gets doesn't seen, what gets upvoted and what gets downvoted. Um, and there's a guy I know called Paddy who works on the Minima project, who's very, very smart. And he says the only real use case for blockchain is censorship resistance, that it enables you to build something which no one can censor you on. And in many ways, that is the ideal that we don't necessarily want to be pre-censoring people before they do an action. If, let's say, Holocaust denial. We know we don't want Holocaust deniers out there talking about it, but it's not necessarily for the, for the application to censor that. It's more for the prosecution service to follow up with it and arrest them for it, or whatever the case is for that. And that's the attitude of a lot of uh, blockchainers and Bitcoiners, that they have this libertarian view that 
they should be allowed to do and say what they want. And yet if they break a law, that's fair enough. But you can't um, you can't minority report them. Yeah. <laughs> you are not going to let you do this because you might do it. Because in effect, by censoring people, and, and again, I'm not saying this is 100% my view, but I do see this view a lot, that by censoring people, you are in effect accusing them of being guilty of a crime before they've committed it. You say you can't talk about this um, because you might want to. Whether or not they want to doesn't really matter. Yeah, no, it's interesting. No, you, you, no, I. Well, I think that's a very, uh, very valid, uh, very valid point. Uh, and with you think about all the situations where I've seen that, where where that applies, and yeah, yeah. And you think as well that the law isn't necessarily the best measure of moral right. Slavery was legal, um, and freeing slaves is illegal. There's stuff now in the US with uh, marijuana. It's a common one that, you know, in some places it's legal, some places it's not. Some places it's now legal. People are in jail for sentences they were arrested for a couple of months before it became legal. And what you have with blockchain is the idea that instead of a single body saying, yep, you can or can't do this, you let it go to the community. So in the case of, that's if, for example, Bitcoin wasn't just about transferring Bitcoins, it was about transferring information. You might get this thing that the miners themselves say, actually, we're not going to let data of this nature go onto the network. So you might have that community say, well, actually, we don't want to do this. They might do it individually, and a couple of them might still let it happen. But you end up with a true democratic system where it's decided by the mass rather than enforced by the few. Yeah, yeah. I sound really libertarian at this point. No, 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 no. I, I, I like it. I like it. So when you look at what your do type of projects you're working on now, and maybe bleed that into well, the Alaman and certainly the government, they've got their digital agency now. Yeah. What what's you know, if um, you know, it's certainly a big push on the Alaman. What what what's going on in that world? Um, there's a surprising amount happening on Ireland, actually. Um, I know you've got Lyle and the team over at Digital Alaman with their blockchain office. They are, I haven't, don't speak too much, but they're quite regularly trying to get people over here. And there's a lot of people on the island quite heavily involved in the industry. So um, a guy called Lee Hills over at Solutions Hub is very good at the legal aspect of blockchain comp- and, and companies coming to the island and what they require and what they aren't. And the goal is to try and get companies to come here really because there's a lot of places in the world still that are very anti-censorship resistant technology because they're governments. And if you give people power, they generally don't want to give it away to other people. Mm. So you find there's a lot of restrictions on it. If we could be an island where we say, you know what, we're going to have some restrictions, we're going to have clear legislation, then we would start to attract more people. And that's what I'm seeing actually with a lot of companies when I speak to them is they're moving to jurisdictions which have very clear legislation even though it might not necessarily be as favorable as somewhere else but because it's clear what they're allowed to do and not not do they're choosing to go there because they don't want to be in a situation where they run something raise several million and suddenly are all in jail for breaking a law they weren't really aware of um, but there are a lot of little companies on the arm doing it um there's some fairly big ones well i know casino coin um is a a KYC token for gambling companies that I've been following for a few years. 
they're based on Ireland. You obviously got the hub, uh, Jason Scales down at the hub running the group there. And there's a lot of people based out of that. Um, and there's a lot of noise just below the surface. Lots of companies doing things quite quietly. Um, not necessarily talking about being a blockchain company either. They're, they're building solutions and not saying this is, and not marketing it's a blockchain solution. They're just building it as a, a genuine solution for end users. Um, I think actually that's a sign of something across the industry now. We've gone away from the initial hype and let's all raise millions of dollars in 20 minutes to let's actually build something that users want because that's where the long-term growth is. That's where the long-term money is for companies. Yeah, okay. And your, and your interaction with, with, with those scenarios and the people you work with, what, what, you know, what's involved in that for you from your perspective? I imagine apart from being very interesting. Um, it's I've literally never had so much fun in a job. It's it's great. Um, so it depends on the company. So I've done a lot of copywriting over the years. So one of my main focuses is on copywriting for some of these companies. So either direct response or more technical copywriting. So I've done a few white papers, um, lots of technical articles around subjects and that sort of thing. Um, and again, because I enjoy that, it's. I've spent years learning about it. It's relatively easy for me to sit there and write quite technical articles about services that I hadn't necessarily encountered before, but because I've got the technical background at a level, I can sort of look at their code and I can say, actually, I understand what you're trying to do here. I can talk to the devs and then translate what they're saying into something normal people can understand. <laughs> so that side's quite a major bit of it. And uh, I really enjoy that side. I do a lot of work around that. But then some of it is the more technical architecture side. So companies perhaps who have an end goal and they know they've got this end user solution they want to build, but they don't know how to build it or what's required. So I'll help them out with actually, right, let's do an analysis of what your end user is going to do, how they're going to do it. Um, I've talked quite a lot out of using a blockchain, to be honest. All right which is a shame I taught myself out of jobs, but they, um, lots of time it's that thing where they've heard about it and they don't really understand it and think, could this be the way to do X, Y, or Z? And because blockchain people don't like to talk about limitations like the overheads of electricity and the slow nature of consensus, when you break it down and say, well, you know, if you need to do a thousand transactions per second, yeah. you just can't do it at the minute on a standard blockchain solution. And they go, okay, then sorry, well, you know, I can still help them build an architectural model around it. Um, but if they do want a blockchain, then it's, well, how does that fit into your entire tech stack? What data are you going to store in it? What data are you going to store in a database? What apps are you going to need? How is it all going to talk to each other? And it's that side of things, that more technical side. Um, which, again, is very interesting to do. Um, tends to be longer projects, though, because it's a lot of work goes into that sort of thing. Yeah. So, the what when you look at the industry in, in general, I mean, the question I had was around how uh, frustrating it can be, or air, what areas are frustrating. And I suppose what springs to my mind, and not being anywhere sort of deep into it, is the use the word hot air, perhaps, and the the uh, scams that go on. But the reality is, they go on in all, all all forms of life, not not just that. But yeah. I suppose that maybe chat a little bit about that and. You chat before we came on air about the documentary as well that that maybe touches on that those elements as well. Yeah, um, 
There are. I mean, that's the thing. There's a huge amount of money floating around in the space. If you look at the numbers for DeFi recently, they're just absurd. And it's the same as the ICO craze we had when people were building a project and they didn't have a single line of code. They would just have a white paper that says, this is what we're going to do. They would launch a token, take a couple of days to build, push it out there and raise 10 million quid in a day. And it's just absurd volumes of money. And that creates, unfortunately, a level of greed and a certain a desire for people to scam others because it makes it easy to do it. Um, and that's matched by the fact it is still new technology. Most people don't understand it. They've heard about it, maybe. They've heard about Bitcoin, maybe. They know there's a lot of money involved. So it does create that environment for scammers to come through. Um, and we still see a lot of that. Even on LinkedIn, I get three or four messages a day from scammers. Mm. So, oh, have you heard about Bitcoin mining? It's like, well, yes, obviously. Yeah. Um, one guy said to me, I could get an 800% return on my £1,000 investment per week, yeah. which I thought was quite generous. <laughs> and um, it's that sort of thing. You do get a lot of that. And But it's exactly the same as the old email scams we used to get of the Nigerian prince who's died and left you a billion pounds for no discernible reason. What? But, so you're telling me he hasn't? <laughs> this is actually, uh, Rich put a thing on say, the other day about winning a load of Bitcoin and getting a certificate for it. <laughs> but it's, uh, that's the thing. We do get lots of scams, and it's, but it's the same scams just with the new bit of terminology on them. Mm. So it's it's kind of just a, I feel it takes an industry that's trying to obviously build a reputation and build a an understanding and acceptance from the, the community as, as in the world, that these things yeah. must, get, must be frustrating because every step and evolution that goes forward in the blockchain digital currencies takes three steps forward, it's kind of one back when, yeah. when the scammers going on. And It is, and, and that's one of the things with social media platforms when you're involved in it. Um, there's a reason mine now doesn't say blockchain or Bitcoin heavily in my profile because you get a lot of people saying, well, you know, I won't talk to anyone who's involved in Bitcoin because I get so many scams about it per day. And it doesn't matter if you're legitimate or not, you're still painted with that brush of being a scammer connected yeah. to the scam industry. Yeah. And it does that. Yeah. And the documentary? Uh, the documentary is very interesting. It's uh, It was just one of the things that I um, didn't think... I, it's still a thing I'd never have got involved in at Telecom at all. There's no way. Um, so a guy called uh, Rich Teller messaged me a while ago on LinkedIn and said, oh, we're doing a project. Would you like to be involved in it? I um, sat down, or I did a Skype a video call with him, had a chat about what, what he was doing and thought, yeah, this is brilliant. This is exactly the reason I got into this sort of space, to have the flexibility to work on projects like this and be involved in them. Um, and he's making a documentary based around um, a guy called Tom Gillespie's investigations into um, a scammer called Bitman360. And I don't want to go too much into the mechanics of it and the details, but I got to do an interview with Bitman360 yesterday, which I put out on LinkedIn, where I sort of talked to him about his side of being involved in this, what it's like to have someone follow you around to investigate you as a scammer, and that side of things. Um, and it's it's just a rare opportunity to be involved in something which is different and relevant and very relevant at the minute. So there's some of the things they're doing as well. 
uh, they've got a, a great guy, um, very smart guy called Linus, who is doing some tech development for them. So they've got a live cryptocurrency now. They're doing things with the documentary itself where they're hoping we're looking at ways we can make it interactive, that people can go on and actually buy things through the documentary with cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of these crazy projects that you think five, ten years ago, no one would have tried. But now we've got the tech to do it, and it really is quite fun. When's it due out? Um, we pushed it back to start of April now. Okay. Um, we're looking to it in December originally, but the project... Rich wanted to do it as almost a decentralized movie project where everyone involved has inputs and the ideas that have been bounced around have changed a lot of how the project is going. So there's more stuff that's happening with it now. So uh, Rich made the decision to push it back to April rather than trying to sort of get something out the end of the year he wasn't happy with. Um, so we're starting to do some more marketing around it now and start to build up the people involved and put things out on social around them. Good, good. Well, good luck with it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> outside of work, what do you, what do you get up to? In, um, in the minute, uh, well, I used to do quite a lot of obstacle racing. So, so I was heavily involved in martial arts for 15 years. Um, I did Thriller in the Villa a couple of times. Okay. And eventually you get to the age where you think being punched in the head for fun isn't actually that much fun anymore particularly when I got punched in the head by a guy who was six foot eight and 40 kilograms bigger than me in a boxing yeah. match. It's like, yeah, this is, this is the line now. So I, I started doing obstacle racing instead. Okay. Um, I got, um, I knew the guy who started, um, what's it called? The one that was over here. Oh, uh, yeah. But, oh, uh, tough man. That was it. So yeah, tough man. So, um, I'd always thought about doing one, but didn't want to sort of pay the money to go across and try one in case I hated it. So I did Toughman over here every year. Ends up with a guy I know, Tris, going across to England and trying to find harder and harder races to do. And we did Tough Guy, which is based down in the uh, south of England. And it's always the last day in last Sunday in January. So generally it's freezing cold, there's electric shocks, the concrete tunnels that end up going out under water, you've got to crawl through. And mm-hmm. um, one year they had to send someone out with bricks to break the ice on the obstacles before we went through them. And it's that sort of thing um, for fun. Well, that was just the words coming out of my mouth, why? Yeah. Um, it's kind of addictive. It's one of those things where you do one and you think, well, I've done that. And I'm not speed is not my forte should we say when it comes to races i'm more of a grind through and get to the end guy and knowing that i kept having to find harder and harder races um to really push myself so i did um the spartan races do something called a trifecta where they do three different race lengths and if you do all of them in a year you get a special award for it they call the spartan trifecta so being the muppet i am i decided to do all three in a weekend and um, go, so we did, I think it was the 12 mile race on the Saturday. This is year before last. Um, the eight miler on the Sunday morning. And then I had to go back out and do a 5K race that afternoon of obstacles. And it was nice. cold, it was raining. And that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do is go up and sign up for that third race, knowing that if I didn't do it, I was not going to get back over. I wouldn't get the trifecta. Um, 
and then I actually signed up for the 50 kilometer ultra they're doing they do now so I've got that yeah. one in uh they've just pushed it back to the end of next year now so that I assume then 50k a lot of running in that and then it's through whatever yeah um yeah, it's about, I think there's something like 50 to 60 obstacles. Um, the real fun part of that is that every time you fail an obstacle, you have to do 30 burpees. Okay. And they've got, because it's a, the ultra, they've actually got marshals there to ensure every ultra runner actually finishes their burpees. And, and there's a time limit on it. Right. So, <laughs> so that's fun. Going to be stiff the next day, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing is, now I've got um, two young kids as well. I've got one four and one one and a half. So between them, they take up an awful lot of time for me and my partner. So we're always running around after them. So the uh, days of spending two or three hour gym sessions and going out for long endurance runs are well behind me. Oh, yeah. Just fit in when you can. Yeah, I've not come across when you mentioned Spartan racing before we came on. I've not not even come across it before, but yeah, but certainly even like anything in the world nowadays, you can Google it. And uh, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, where else are you going to get to go and throw spears at a hay bale as right. part of a challenge yeah. and yeah. climb up twenty foot ropes and all the other daft things we have to do? I know I'm behind the curtain here, but I'm about halfway through uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, I'm like four years behind the behind the curtain. <laughs> But uh, yeah, throwing spears after you haven't watched that sounds quite interesting. And that's oddly one of the hardest obstacles because the rest are either brute strength or brute grit. You've got to sort of grind through them, but throwing a spear requires a level of skill. And it's not something you can really practice. I don't have spear throwing kits at home. <laughs> and with two kids, I'm definitely not getting them because um, there's no way I'm letting them do And uh, for you then, the over the next few years when you look at what you're doing, what you know, what's your hopes for, I suppose, one, the industry and you personally? At the minute, it's a trick. I got into it because I wanted to do something long-term that I enjoyed. And to be honest, I am doing it. Took a, it probably took me a month and a half to get it off the ground to the stage where it was financially hitting the same level as at telecom. Um, but now I'm sort of comfortable with it that, it's really to be working in interesting projects. And I've said this to a few, it's like um, the fake fluence of the documentary. I said to Richard, you know, I, this is why I got involved in it, to do fun projects like this that are a bit out there, that are a bit different. And to be able to turn down the ones, I think, you know, this maybe isn't as on the right side of where I see the tech heading. Um, because we are seeing a lot of that as well, that people are, centralized organizations are co-opting the tech um you know, the chinese uh, digital one that's coming out is a prime example of a government saying well look at us we're doing the same as all these other things no you're just doing the same as you're currently doing just with a yeah. new branding yeah, yeah. Um, and it's that ability to choose that's who i work with and what conditions i work with them on that's and be able to do that long term so to be honest I quite see myself doing exactly the same as I'm doing now is going out, finding these interesting projects, talking about the tech, because in five, 10 years, we'll probably be in the same situation that more people will have heard of it, but most people won't understand it still. And being able to just go and talk to people about it, help people understand it, help good projects um, that are actually going to make a difference get going. So as Roman, for example, led, they're helping home solar energy generators make more money. 
I was like, well, that seems a no-brainer to be involved in that they're, they're making money from it. And home, we're going to encourage more people to get home solar power. It's great. There's no downside to that. Yeah, yeah. Like you say, it's enjoyable. It's, yeah. It's and it's all about the world, isn't it, to get a job we enjoy. Yeah. And that does make a huge difference. I'll be sat up at, you know, some, some nights I'm here at two in the morning chatting to a, um, I know a guy in America I regularly talk to or on the, the Telegram groups talking to investors in the various projects who are scattered around the world. Um, but because I enjoy it, it's not, I don't think, God, I'm up at two in the morning and I think, I'm forcing myself to go, I've got to stop talking to these guys. I've got to stop yeah. finding out this stuff. Yeah. And I was talking to one guy about post-quantum cryptography the other week who's in China and you're like, this is just crazy. I shouldn't be able to do this. But I'm just chatting to him online and he's yeah. telling me about this tech he's building. So, yeah. so it's incredible that, times. That, that, that raises just a, a question I had actually. Yeah. The, the, when we were talking earlier about the, the, the blockchain element, when particularly just talk about Bitcoin because it's probably the most most well-known one that these as these blocks build if you if you have to amend the first block then you amend the second and third and the computer powering for that is is something that's pretty much considered not possible and i don't know anything about well anything really but quantum computing which is a, a word i've heard thrown around but that that i assume is a power of the computer that perhaps we don't even aware of right now is there is the uh again i've maybe seen the odd article saying that maybe one day compute something like quantum computing could, let's use the word, layman's term, hack Bitcoin and, and, and mess up all of yeah. that. That's something that, what's your views on that? What, um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because it's a very relevant one for the industry. Um, so when you look at a blockchain, just to give you an idea how it's secured, it's not based on the computing power to build the block. It's based on the current computing power of the network. So if you've got, when Bitcoin first came out, you might have had two or three computers mining blocks. <clears throat> but now you've got however many thousand there are doing it. And that's the strength of the network is the current strength of it. So when we end up in a post-quantum computing world, the risk is that one or two people have very powerful quantum computers that are so much more powerful than everyone else in the network. They can just take control of it. Um, but there are ways around this. I know um, Minimum, one of the projects I've worked with, they are doing a post-quantum resistance solution. And that's above my head how it works, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but a lot of them now are swapping to the, um, they used to use an encryption method called um, SHA-2. And now there's one called SHA-3, okay. which is, uh, independently developed which is supposed to be more resistant to it and a lot of the solutions now are, are sort of building that quantum resistance or post-quantum computing resistance into their solutions but some of the legacy ones like bitcoin uh, don't have it they're so running if i understand how that would work would be that within the code <laughs> again really layman terms that there it's built that the people who the consensus people have to if it's the same computer doing that mathematics all the time it goes no you you can't i need to keep a, a range of people to do this yeah so um yeah if you wanted to change bitcoin they have to do it through a consensus so what when you change bitcoin's um process you're not changing again it's not like you're changing the software on one computer you have to go out to all the people who are mining it and say to them 
were, we want to make this change. Do you agree or do you not agree? And that's where you end up with, um, if people ever talk about forks on a chain, that's where you end up with that, where some people say, we're going to mine it and generate the chain based on this set of rules. And other people say, well, we want to do it on a different set of rules. And then whichever set of rules has the most people generally wins out. Um, that's what happens with things like um, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold. It's a few people said, we don't like your rules, so we're going to do our own version with different rules. And you end up with this fork in the chain where you have two different systems in effect that have a common ancestry. Right, okay. I know the concern then if it was a quantum computer would be that that, because it's doing all the mining, that it's therefore yeah, it, in a central place. Yes, that a quantum computer could be powerful enough to say, you know what, I'm going to rewrite all the blocks on this chain. I'm going to put my own history out there. Yeah. And I'm so much more powerful than everyone else. Mine becomes the truth. And all the other computers look at it and go, well, yeah, that one's right. Okay. But the, there is a certain aspect of game theory that says they wouldn't necessarily do that because Bitcoin's value is in the fact that no one can do that. Um, it's the same thing as at the minute, there's a lot of the mining happening in China. And that's a concern that 60, 70% of the Chinese is happening in one location. If the Chinese government turned around and said, right, we're going to swap up, switch all that off, or we're going to take control of it, which they may or may not want to do, particularly as they're doing their own currency, what would they do with it? And the theory is that they wouldn't necessarily say, well, we're going to allocate ourselves all the Bitcoin or loads of the Bitcoin, because everyone else would say, well, it's got no value now. If yeah. anyone, if you can do that, it's worthless. But they could uh, destroy the network if they wanted to. They could do that deliberately to take Bitcoin down and say, well, we've got this one now. Yeah, okay, yeah. So there's certain aspects of that around the game theory side of it as to how it operates and would someone actually do that. But yeah, post-quantum um, computing and post-quantum cryptography are very, very complicated from the little, from the tiny amount I've looked at. And... Um, they are a risk because the some people are saying it's imminent. It'll be three to five years. Some people are saying, well, actually, no, we're much further away than that. Um, yeah. But it'll be one of those things that suddenly appears. One person gets it right, and then everyone else figures it out afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a heavy, uh, heavy subject to finish on. Uh, but I appreciate you joining me today. Uh, it's been uh, really insightful. Uh, yeah, and I appreciate your time, Dan. Thanks very much. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.